What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Today's episode is with Sovereign Community founder, Eden Yago. In this conversation, we discuss decentralized infrastructure, synthetic assets, Bitcoin, Ethereum, oracles, permissionless innovation, wrapped Bitcoin, and Bitcoin mutants. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Remote.com. In 2021, every business is a global business. But how do you pay your global team and comply with international labor laws? Remote handles payroll, benefits, taxes, and compliance to help companies of all sizes pay and manage full-time and contract workers all over the world. No matter where your team lives and works, Remote's global employment solutions keep your team, your finances, and your intellectual property secure. Remote never charges percentages or fees, just best-in-class global employment solutions for a low-flat rate. The world's top global companies love Remote. GitLab, the world's largest all-remote organization, trusts Remote to manage their global team. And so should you. Remote is funded by Index Ventures, Sequoia Capital, and a host of other top-tier investors. You can learn more about Remote and their Remote for Startups program at remote.com. Again, remote.com. Go check them out. I love it. You will too. Next up is OKCoin. OKCoin.com is the leading crypto exchange for both beginners and experienced users. You can fund your account in under two minutes and get access to the most advanced trading engine, all while paying the lowest trading fees in the industry. You can visit OKCoin.com slash POMP and open your account today. What's really, really important about OKCoin.com is the philosophy that they're taking when building an exchange. They don't allow credit cards because they're trying to make sure people do the right thing. They also have been funding Bitcoin developers. So they're giving money directly to the people who are building the open decentralized protocol of Bitcoin. And lastly, they recently decided to delist BCH and BSV because they don't want their customers to get confused and think they're buying Bitcoin but be buying something else. Whatever you think, you have to respect the fact that OKCoin stands for something. They're a US-based regulated exchange and they're making sure people know exactly what they believe. So I'm happy that they're a sponsor. You should go to okcoin.com slash pomp and open your account today. If you agree with the things they agree with, go to okcoin.com slash pomp today. Lastly is Masterworks. Monetary and fiscal measures by governments globally are inflating asset prices, rocket ships all around for everyone. Sophisticated investors are putting a portion of their portfolio in real assets to hedge against future inflation. You can preserve your net worth, but it is as hard as it's ever been. But that's where masterworks.io comes in. Masterworks.io lets you invest in multi-million dollar paintings by artists like Banksy and Basque. I think I said it right, Basque, maybe it's Basque, but you guys get the point. It's Real, real expensive art. But not only does art hedge against the markets, it can also outperform them. According to Citi, contemporary art returned 13.6% per year over the last 25 years compared to 9% for the S&P 500. The problem is that most investment grade paintings cost upwards of a million dollars, making the asset class reserved for the top 1%. But no longer. Masterworks.io is making art investing accessible to everyone, regardless of accreditation. If you're looking to diversify outside of the stock market, contemporary art has the lowest correlation to of all 10 major asset classes. The best part, you don't need to know anything about art to invest. 
Masterworks has experts that will create a custom portfolio to meet your investment needs. You can learn more if you go to masterworks.io and use promo code POMP. That's right. That's masterworks.io, promo code POMP. If you use the promo code POMP at masterworks.io, you'll skip their entire wait list. Masterworks.io, promo code POMP. Go get you some art and make sure you are protecting yourself. All right, let's get into this episode of Eden. I hope you enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Eden, how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. How are you? I got no complaints, man. As uh, as people come in here, we're going to uh, to quickly figure out uh, first just where they are, uh, where they're coming from. So if you're starting to get in here, let us know in the comments section where exactly you're tuning in from uh, around the world as we do this live stream. We're going to be talking about decentralization. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin, all kinds of great stuff today. Uh, and we have one of the uh, the world's experts uh, here with us with Iago. So uh, in the chat section, go ahead and leave uh, a comment in terms of where are you tuning in from today to watch this? And I'll read some of them out. Say hello to people before we get started. Let's see. Who do we have? Let's see. Let's see. Takes a second for the comments to load. All right. So let's get started now. We've got about um, a good number of people watching. And uh, so maybe Iago, let's just get started with your background. Where exactly uh, did you grow up? How did you get into technology? When did you discover Bitcoin? Uh, and what kind of fascinated with you? I grew up in apartheid South Africa uh, to a family that had managed to survive the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic and then uh, the, the Holocaust by basically... Um, converting, liquidating all of their earthly money into uh, gold and gems. And they went through all kinds of remarkable stories and, and terrible suffering. And then when I was growing up in South Africa, many of them were members of the ANC, which was the, it's basically Nelson Mandela's, eventually a political party fighting for, for freedom in South Africa. And because they were associated with the ANC, they uh, were at some point declared terrorists by the, the South African government. And so in the middle of the night, one night when I was just a little kid, um, I was woken up by a lot of commotion and I kind of grabbed my pillow and walked out to see what was happening. And uh, my uncle had, was kind of out of breath and had just arrived at our doorstep. And my grandfather was giving him the keys to the car because he needed to switch cars so he wouldn't be traceable. And he's, when he and his wife drove out of South Africa through the lights to um, uh, Botswana. And uh, not long after, I became a gold smuggler because my mother started buying Cougarans and sewing them into my clothes and sending me alone overseas because they wouldn't search little kids in the Ansmuts airport 
and we needed to get money out of South Africa to our family. So uh, sometimes I joke that I've been a Bitcoiner uh, for you know 30 years. But um, explain the gold smuggling a little bit more because that's a fascinating story. So uh, kind of walk through exactly what was happening uh, and what you were doing. Yeah. So so there were a few things. First of all, you know, uh, part of my family had. Uh, as I mentioned, fled South Africa as political um, escapees, basically. Um, and to get money to them uh, wasn't simple because at the time in South Africa, there were very substantial capital controls. But South Africa produced 80% of the world's gold at the time. And that's what South Africa was famous for. And um, the South African government minted a gold coin called the Kruger Rand, which is one ounce of gold. And it traded at substantially more than the value of one ounce of gold because it was so rare because you couldn't get them out of South Africa. Uh, and so what my parents decided to do was they bought a bunch of Kruberans. And then um, what they would do when, is when it was winter, they would sew these Kruberans into my winter coat. And then they would send me overseas alone. The reason they would send me overseas alone is because when you went to Janspot's import as a nine or 11 year old kid at the time, uh, you were basically chaperoned, but you weren't searched. And so I, I, I was the best conduit for getting funds out of the country at the time. And made, a few years later, uh, we, we left South Africa as well. And, and the first winter that I was living in Israel, uh, the first day of winter, I went to school and I put my hands into my pockets and I was like, uh oh because I realized that I was at school sitting on a whole stash of Kruger Rands that we had forgotten to take out of a jacket. So um, so I had to spend the whole day at school being very careful not to lose my, my gold coins. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you know, I come from a family that's always been extremely politically active. Um, we have in one way or another been on the bad side of totalitarian governments from communists to the Nazis to the apartheid government. Um, across the 20th century and uh when i grew up i studied neuroscience uh and in particular neural networks and i then immigrated to the united states because i thought that the united states was the country of freedom um as the country of free markets and i wanted to be part of that and i started a biotech company and uh my focus was on neural networks and using basically machine learning to try and create better diagnostics um and um so i was reading a lot of papers in network science and uh one of the papers that i came across in, in early 2011 i think it must have been around now like february 2011 uh was the satoshi white paper and i remember i had you know it was freezing pittsburgh day february and I had my coffee and I spilled my coffee all over my laptop because my mind was blown by, by that paper. A lot of people, you know, have the story that they kind of took a long time to warm up to, to Bitcoin. But I think because of my background, <clears throat> I, I was primed. Like I was into network science. I was into, I, I understood the value of having sovereign money. And that afternoon I sent out an email to everyone I knew saying, this is, this is what you need to be getting into now. And I was ignored by basically everyone. But it, but it screwed up my life because I've been, I've been in it ever since. So when, after you sent that email, like what was the first thing that you did? Did you know that you wanted to go and buy a bunch? Did you want to work on it? Um, kind of what, what was the next couple of things that you did? Well, I was very poor at the time. 
because I had uh, started the startup. I put uh, all my money into the startup. Um, I had about $230 in the bank. And I was still trying to figure out how I can get Bitcoin. I was trying to figure out how I, how you wire $230 to Mount Gox without, to like Japan without it costing you $230 in fees. Um, and eventually what I did is I left my startup and I, um, I moved to San Francisco and I took a job with a company called Zynga, which at the time was the fastest growing game company in the world. And the reason I wanted to work for Zynga was because I was sure that digital assets are going to be the future and no company knew how to mainstream digital assets better than, than Zynga. Um, our primary customer was Midwestern housewife. We had, you know, hundreds of millions of customers around the world shortly after I joined. And so I, I was with that company for um, several years, all through the IPO. I helped uh, turn Zynga into one of the first companies in the world to accept Bitcoin as a, as a means of payment. Um, and um, and then I, I, uh, when I left Zynga, I, I helped set up an organization called Data uh, to try and work on the regulatory issues of Bitcoin. Uh, and then uh, in 2013, I, uh, I, I set up not one, but two Bitcoin companies. Uh, one was BXIL, which was designed to help uh, exchanges that were losing their bank accounts process payments. And the other was more ambitious. It was called Epifite. And um, uh, the goal with Epifite was to uh, work with banks to turn Bitcoin into the global settlement mechanism and replace SWIFT. So kind of like Ripple, but without the shitcoin. Um, and, uh, our customers included Barclays, Sparebank, BBVA, CBA. We had, um, seven out of the 10 largest banks in the world as our customers, uh, in 2014, 2015, but they were terrified by the, uh, like the innovation departments loved it. Um, the actual board of directors, uh, usually wouldn't approve it, but didn't approve it ever. And so we, we pivoted to using the technology that we've built, basically um, turning fiat into Bitcoin in one place, converting it into fiat in a different place, all, uh, allowing basically almost instantaneous transfers to a uh, mechanism for getting remittance, to, to allowing remittance payments. So we were sending funds from Europe to um, Africa, to Latin America, to East Asia. And then 2016, 17 hit, and we started making uh, extraordinary profit because um, we basically could go to our customers and say, we will do free remittance for you. Uh, and we were buying Bitcoin in uh, Europe or the UK and then sending it to Thailand, Brazil, Zimbabwe, Nigeria, where it was trading at a 5, 10, 15, 25% premium. And so we were making on every single transfer, sometimes 15%, uh, sometimes more. And, uh, and we were using our customers' funds as basically free float. Um, so it was an extraordinarily profitable business. And that was part of the reason why it got shut down. Uh, at the time we started doing our volumes, um, went up, uh, dramatically and the banking partners that we had, uh, one by one started shutting us down. Uh, and later we discovered that a lot of it was pressure from JP Morgan at the time, who were the primary U.S., um, uh, clearing bank for most of our banking partners. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, I, I, after that, I was I was done with with the fiat world, I, and I, <laughs> I haven't been I haven't been in fiat ever since. 
All right, before we get into what you're building now, uh, I want to talk about the importance of decentralization, uh, especially around infrastructure. So uh, everyone is very familiar, if you're familiar with Bitcoin around decentralized money, I think it's pretty clear as to why uh, there's significant advantage to Bitcoin being decentralized rather than centralized. Uh, but one of the things that we've seen is uh, all of the infrastructure, or most of the infrastructure, especially up until recently, uh, has been centralized around Bitcoin. Um, there's a number of other places in the market where there's been decentralized infrastructure uh, or decentralized applications being built. But Bitcoin specifically, most of it uh, that has been built in terms of the exchanges, the custody providers, uh, the lending um, you know, platforms, all of that has been centralized. And so maybe just kind of give us a quick high level overview of like, why do you see the infrastructure and the applications around Bitcoin being so important uh, as decentralized versions? Um, and then kind of how do you evaluate where we are today outside of what you're building? Right. I think that's a great question. Um, you know, for me, the, the magic of Bitcoin, uh, yeah, I, I didn't get into Bitcoin because I wanted to get wealthy. I got into Bitcoin because I wanted to improve the world. Uh, specifically, I thought it was important for people not to be um, enslaved to a financial system where uh, they, they were out of control, right? Bank could confiscate their funds. The government could confiscate their funds. Uh, their funds could be censored. Uh, and, you know, part of this is due to the experiences that I'd experienced. Um, and so the magic for me about Bitcoin is that it is this revolution in creating a liberty, a sovereign monetary system available to everyone in the world, but it's dressed up as a get-rich-quick scheme, so, so it gets adoption. And... Um, The frustrating thing throughout the years, and I think this is, uh, you know, I think back to the conversations I was having in, uh, the, you know, pre, let's call it 2015 with Bitcoiners. Everyone was sure that we were going to have decentralized exchanges, decentralized lending, uh, basically all of the financial services around Bitcoin would be decentralized. And the reason was obvious. You have this amazing decentralized, permissionless, uncensor, uncensorable monetary asset. And um, if you then, you know, have to use it through a centralized service, you give up all of those properties. So the exchanges get hacked, the exchanges require KYC, the exchanges become regulated. Um, uh, and, 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 and Bitcoin loses the, the very properties that you that 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 it has that, that made people want it in the first place. What I think happened over time is people discovered that it's it's difficult to decentralize uh, Bitcoin in a responsible way. Um, it was easier to start building um, decentralized projects on uh, Ethereum and other services, and and then over the last few years we've seen the explosion of DeFi. Uh, now. DeFi has uh, sort of the Ponzi-nomics part of it, right? Where people are just kind of looking for 200% APY yield and creating token upon token upon token. And that's sort of the noise. But the fundamental value it provides is phenomenal. The fundamental value of decentralized finance is the ability to retain your control over your keys over your asset, even as you begin to lend, transact, and create a new financial system. Um, and so, uh, I think the thing that we need to give credit to Ethereum for 
is reawakening the interest among Bitcoiners in creating this decentralized finance, giving us the feeling that it, um, it is now within our grasp. And um, in conversations that I started having uh, earlier last year, and particularly after the pandemic hit, um, more and more people who I'd known in, this, you know, in the Bitcoin space uh, for years started talking about their frustration that there wasn't DeFi for Bitcoin. And, um, and I, yeah, I think to me, having decentralized applications for Bitcoin is a necessary step in all of the things that imagine Bitcoin being able to achieve. That hyper-Bitcoinization means you're going to have to have a financial system based on Bitcoin. The way you do that is by having a decentralized financial system. Uh, retaining your control over your keys can only be done in a decentralized financial system and having permissionless innovation in finance can only be done in a, in a decentralized financial system. So uh, I think if we want to see Bitcoin achieve its full potential, uh, it has to have a cloud of decentralized financial services around. So before we go any further in terms of that decentralized infrastructure, the, the term uh, permissionless innovation, uh, I think is one that uh, doesn't get evaluated enough or, or discussed. Talk a little bit more about like what does permissionless innovation mean and why is that important? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, almost everyone's seen the charts where um, the cost of education has just gone up and up and up. The cost of housing has just gone up and up. And up. The cost of healthcare has just gone up and up and up. But at the same time, the cost of computers has gone down. The cost of services that are provided digitally has gone down. Google is free. Facebook is free. Why, 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 why that weird bifurcation? And I think the reason is that some industries have permissionless innovation. In other words, anyone can become a competitor. Anyone can challenge the incumbents. And some industries are so protected by regulation uh, that entry into those industries is impossible. The incumbents never need to change because nobody can compete with them. And as a result, they become more expensive and worse year after year. The worst example of this is the financial system, right? Uh, the big banks, the large financial institutions have hardly had to compete uh, at all. Uh, and they've Hardly, you know, we, we still have bank branches because they've felt the need to, to, to figure out how to provide us with a fully digital experience. And most recently, with the whole Wall Street's bet saga, uh, we saw that when somebody actually does create a model which may compete with it, right, it allows people to, you know, uh, try something like shorting, uh, uh, you know, squeezing the hedge funds. The regulators in concert with the large financial institutions can basically uh, turn it off. So the reason that permissionless innovation is so important is because without permissionless innovation, you actually don't have competition. And, uh, and the reason permissionless innovation in finance is so important is because Facebook is cool, right? Like talking to friends is very important. Searching for information is very important. But at the end of the day, we all spend eight to 10 hours every single day working for money. We all purchase the things that we want with money. We all manage the security of our futures and our family's futures with our finances. We basically 
um, express ourselves and, and our, our deepest desires and needs in the way that we manage our finances more than any other thing that we do. And so if there's one place that we need to be free, one place that if we're not free, they can really squeeze us, it's our finances. And that's why permissionless innovation in finance is, is probably more important than any other single field. So today, decentralized infrastructure is basically, uh, there's two schools of thought. One is that we are going to take Bitcoin, which is decentralized money, and we are going to bring it into uh, the Ethereum or other smart contract platforms. Uh, there's things like wrapped Bitcoin um, and, and many variations of that. Uh, the other is that we're going to build new decentralized infrastructure on Bitcoin and around Bitcoin, uh, not including those smart contract platforms. How do you break down that framework? Um, how do you evaluate what is most likely to work? And then we can, um, after we go through that, get into exactly what you're building, but just walk us through kind of philosophically or theoretically how those two different worlds, um, is, is it a zero sum game? One wins, one doesn't. Is it uh, coexistence? How, how do you view this? Yeah, I, I think maybe I'll start with the end, whether or not it's a zero sum game. I, I think that's a very uh, dangerous approach for us to take because it creates a, the tribalism that we've seen. And the reason that the tribalism or sort of the point uh, versus Ethereum versus BCH versus Ripple, right? We're all enemies. I, the reason I, that bothers me so much is because I think what we're trying to accomplish is extremely difficult and extremely ambitious. We're trying to, 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 to take on all of the governments of the world and replace uh, uh you know, these fiat currencies with a sovereign currency where, where we the people are in control, right? So all of, the, all of the established powers of the world are arrayed against us. And I think it's going to take all of our concerted efforts to be able to uh, achieve our goal. So I don't want to create situations. I don't think it's good that we create situations where there's you know, an opportunity for divide and conquer among us. Um, that said, I think for us to come together, we should come together around one monetary asset. And I think that monetary asset needs to be the one which has the best chance of becoming the, the new currency, the new reserve currency of the world. And I think that's unquestionably important. Um, so uh, I, I think we, you know, I think ultimately this entire industry is. It moves with Bitcoin, right? We talk about the price of DeFi going up, and then people have all kinds of theories about why DeFi is going up or why the price of Ethereum is going up or whatever, right? But we know why they're going up. It's because the price of Bitcoin is going up. It's the center of gravity. And if it goes down, everything else will go down as well. So now to, to, the, to the first part of your question, right? So, okay, so where do we build DeFi? We, do we build it on Ethereum? Uh, do we try and build it on other systems? Um, I think that you look at what's happening with DeFi for Bitcoin, which to my mind is the most important type of DeFi, right? Because, because Bitcoin is the most important asset. Uh, DeFi for Bitcoin hardly exists or maybe doesn't exist at all on Ethereum. The vast majority of Bitcoin on Ethereum is wrapped Bitcoin, which is basically you go to a company called Bitcoin, BitGo, you give them your coins, you lose control over those coins, and then they give you a token representing coins that sit in their vault. So maybe you can use DeFi systems, but you can't use DeFi. 
So if we want to build DeFi for Bitcoin, it has to be built in a, in a Bitcoin native way. It has to be built on the Bitcoin ecosystem, secured by the Bitcoin miners. And the, 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 the way that you use this Bitcoin should be as trustless as possible. And for that, I think we need to use Bitcoin layer two solutions. Uh, and that's why I got so interested in Sovereign, which is a form of DeFi being built on Bitcoin layer two. So let's talk about Sovereign. Um, maybe we could start with just kind of the impetus of the creation and the original idea, uh, and then kind of what your involvement with the, uh, with the project is. Right. So, um, yeah, as I, as I mentioned, you know, especially when COVID hit a bunch of, um, Bitcoiners started getting together and talking sort of online, things kind of slowed down. There was more private conversation and there was also a need to come together. One of the things that one of the initiatives that I was involved in was an initiative called Block 19. And the idea was to try and get mosques to people around the world who didn't have them. And we were going to take Bitcoin and we took Bitcoin donations to make it happen. Um, and uh, because we were taking the donations to Bitcoin, we wanted to build this in a way which was going to be Bitcoin native. And as a result, we, we built part of the system on a Bitcoin sidechain called Rootstock. And while this was happening, we were having conversations about all the things that we had experienced and sort of talking about where things went and how what we were surprised about and sort of how things had played out in ways which were different from what we hoped or anticipated. And the thing that kept coming, we kept coming back to was that there was no decentralized financial system being built system. And at some point we just decided, all right, screw it. We're going to have to do it ourselves. And so around June of last year, we started working on uh, uh, trying to see how far we could take the rootstock system, uh, which is a system which has smart contracts, but is merge mined with Bitcoin. And, and so extends the capabilities of Bitcoin into the smart contract space in a way that sort of like gives, gives Bitcoin the capabilities of Ethereum. Explain that and, process real, uh, real quick. Explain merge mining for those that don't understand it in terms of how you're taking these smart contract capabilities and uh, essentially uh, combining it with Bitcoin. Sure. So um, merge mining is basically a way of, of piggybacking on the Bitcoin networks security, right? So you get all of these Bitcoin miners and they're, they're in a constant race to look for the correct hash for the next block, right? While they're doing this, they're generating millions of other candidate hashes, which are the incorrect hash. But if, uh, but so, so what you do is you create the system where it will allow you to be looking for the Bitcoin hash. And at the same time that you're generating those hashes, you could turn, it could turn out that one of the other hashes is sort of like lottery ticket for a block to a, a separate chain. And so you have the ability to create a separate chain, which has different properties. In this case, it has smart contract properties that has an EVM or the, the, the Ethereum virtual machine allowing you to create Ethereum-like smart contract. But it is mined by Bitcoin miners and basically shares the same hash power as Bitcoin. And one of the cool things about that is that not only does the chain inherit the security properties of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin miners inherit the additional um, revenue that the new chain provides. You basically are adding to the security budget of Bitcoin. 
Got it. And so talk through a little bit in terms of um, how Sovereign is specifically leveraging this idea of merge mining and the smart contract capabilities. Right. So Sovereign is built uh, to be merge mined in this way and to have smart contracts, which basically allow you to have a system which provides you with the same functionality that you would expect with a regular exchange, but in such a way that you never have to give up control of your keys. You transact directly from your wallet. And the system is unsettled. So there's no KYC. There's no one who can even try to KYC you. There's uh, no uh, way for people to shut down the system. There's no one who can confiscate your funds. And so what Sovereign has now, after several months of development, is it has the ability for you to trade. So, for example, to trade against stable coins like USD stable coins. It has the ability for you to um, convert uh, Bitcoin into a Bitcoin-backed stable coin. So you can like, you can hold onto your Bitcoin but get liquidity in dollars. So you don't have to sell Bitcoin to stop spending dollars. It has the ability to have um, a leverage trading currently up to about uh, up to 5x leverage, although that's going to increase. And it has, which is for me the most exciting thing, the ability to borrow and lend in Bitcoin. So for example, I lend out my Bitcoin in a way which is trustless. I'm not, I don't have to go to a centralized service and, and I'm earning extra money on my Bitcoin. So I, I my Bitcoin to work. Um, and the, the original goal of Sovereign uh, the original ambition was to, to basically do that, provide a, a service which is like an exchange and provides lending and trading services, which, but in an alternative environment, we don't have to give up your control. Uh, what we were anticipating was how much excitement we, we were. We thought that maybe no one had built this because nobody cared uh, and it would end up being a niche product for people like us. What we didn't anticipate was how many people would care, how, how, how many people would be like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. How many people shared our experience? And so we've seen the community of developers grow very, very quickly. We now have over 40 developers uh, contributing to writing, auditing code, documenting code, a community of several thousand uh, users. Uh, we have people, we have artists writing comics about the thing. We have um, people uh, 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 creating documents and videos and just trying to spread the word in everywhere they can. And as the community has grown, so have its ambitions. And um, people are now talking about putting Sovereign into the open source operating system of finance for the future. There's, and, you know, one of the things that I, I think I've heard you say um, is a decentralized version of anything will be larger than the centralized version. Right? Today we have, you know, different banks in different countries because they can't be global because the regulations are sort of fixed to different countries. And, and, and on the other hand, we have Facebook, Google, which are global and basically dominate this space. They've become operating systems for search or for, for social, right? So imagine you had a borderless financial system Right, which was able to do everything, mortgages, pensions, uh, 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 creating stable, like fiat in the form of Bitcoin backed stable coins, trading, lending, everything, right? But it was borderless, it was permissionless. Anyone could use it and it could be anywhere. Uh, the, 
more and more of the community are now talking about, well, I mean, this is what we can build. We can build the next layer of Bitcoin, take the, 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 the asset which recreated the monetary system and, and recreate the financial system in the same way. So when you think through this, um, there's a whole bunch to unpack here, right? Let's start first with the non-Bitcoin decentralized world. Is this something where you say uh, right ideas, interesting execution, not valuable and sustainable over the long term? Is this something where you say right ideas, uh, good execution uh, will coexist? Like, How do you just view, I guess, everything that's not being built on Bitcoin today uh, over maybe a 10-year period? So the short term, ignore that, just over a, a longer time horizon. Kind of, What do you think happens there? I think for me, I've gone through a bit of a journey. I started out extremely skeptical of Ethereum. I didn't think it would scale. I didn't think it would be secure. Um, I didn't think it would work. And in many ways, maybe I was right, right? Like Bitcoin, like Ethereum today maybe has the most hyper-inclusive culture of any blockchain tribe, but from a practical perspective, it's become hyper-exclusive, like only very wealthy people can afford to transact when the transaction fees for like a trade is 200 $300. Um, but at the same time, I was wrong about so many things. The system has proven to be robust and secure. It's lasted now, you know, for, for seven years. Uh, more and more sophisticated things have been built and really remarkable tools have been invented. The first uh, uh, truly permissionless effort, you know, you know, the, the closest we got so far to, to a permissionless competitor, the Federal Reserve, was MakerDAO, which created a, a, a Ethereum-backed stablecoin. Compound has created a decentralized money market. Uniswap has become the first decentralized exchange to um, beat even the biggest centralized exchanges in terms of volume. I think these are not just sustainable. I think they're real important innovations. And, and I've kind of come to realize that if we want Bitcoin to succeed, we can't ignore these things. We have to be curious about them. In fact, nobody should be more curious about these things than Bitcoiners. Uh, nobody should be uh, more excited and, 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 uh, and more interested in developing decentralized financial systems than Bitcoiners. And, and I'm sometimes disappointed that Part of the Bitcoin community, sort of the kind that would, you'd maybe call Bitcoin maximalists, have have become a little bit narrow-minded, too too close-minded for for Bitcoin's own good, uh, in not exploring the space more and not realizing that there is a huge opportunity here. There used to be you know, there are a bunch of important memes in the Bitcoin world. One of those memes, your your coins. Another is hodl, right? Another meme. Is uh, short the bankers, right? Bitcoin. Um, there used to be a, a really important meme, which is as important as any of those, uh, which was uh, anything, any technology that improves upon Bitcoin will simply be adopted by Bitcoin. And we just don't hear that anymore. And I kind of want to bring that back because I think it's a very, very important idea that because Bitcoin is digital money, we can build on top of it. We don't have to change the base there. We can build on top of it in layer two, layer three, and anything which is useful to Bitcoin can and should be adopted by Bitcoin. And so when you think through this, um, 
let's walk through some of the products that you have at Sovereign. So the exchange is a great example. I am with you that it's nearly impossible uh, to ignore some of the innovations that are happening just from a size and market adoption standpoint, right? I, I am very fond of saying my opinion doesn't matter. Neither does anybody else's. Like the market is the referee. Um, and so when you think of your exchange, walk through what is the difference between, let's say, uh, the Sovereign exchange versus Uniswap versus a Coinbase, right? So kind of a centralized version. Then you've got two different decentralized exchanges. So how, how do those three differ from each other? So I think the easiest one to differentiate with is Coinbase, right? So Coinbase, I think, is a really important role to play. It's sort of like the entryway. I think if you know, you can think of being a Bitcoiner as sort of like a, a steps that you take towards your sovereignty, right? You start out, you don't know anything, you dismiss Bitcoin, you're a no coiner. Then you become a little bit curious. You're kind of by curious, right? Then, uh, then you buy your first Bitcoin and you keep it. You keep it on Coinbase, and so you. Bitcoin, but you don't really own Bitcoin. And then you become more self-sovereign because you withdraw from the exchange and put it onto your hardware wallet, right? I think the, the stage after that is that you no longer need to use the exchange, the centralized exchange. You can use a decentralized alternative. So it requires a higher level of sophistication, but it provides you with much more control, much more um, sort of sovereignty for yourself. So that's how both Uniswap and Sovereign are different from Coinbase. Now, the difference between Coinbase, uh, sorry, between Uniswap and Sovereign, there are two obvious ones to my mind. One is uh, Uniswap is built on Ethereum, and um, Ethereum is competing with Bitcoin on features, right? It's competing because it's got the smart contracts, it's competing because, uh, you know, they, they, they try to introduce more technological innovations all the time, like proof of stake they want to introduce. I don't think that you can compete with a global reserve currency on features, right? That, that, that's the wrong way to view it. It's not a technology, it's a, it's a, it's a special consensus. Um, and, and, the, and, and I think that the technology, the specific features that you want can be implemented on any chain, including effectively through merge mining on Bitcoin. So that's one difference, right? I don't think that, I think Ethereum has provided a, an opportunity for massive community growth. It's brought huge numbers of people into the crypto ecosystem and it's created new important and exciting tools. I just uh, think that um, that needs to integrate much more deeply with Bitcoin if we want to have a shared mission across the, the entire crypto community. Uh, the other difference is that Uniswap is designed as a single purpose product, right? It, and the theory in the Ethereum ecosystem is that you're building these Legos, right? You're building, you know, Compound is the money market, Uniswap is the, is the swaps, uh, uh, Fulcrum is the leverage trading, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, and that's a very compelling idea because it seems extremely decentralized and I think it actually makes a lot of sense under some circumstances. But there's a problem. With it. And the problem is that you can't build everything on layer one. Uh, Ethereum is proving that with the extremely high fees. There's, there's, there's no way to build a layer one which is going to scale uh, enough. And so what you end up doing is you, you need to have a sort of fractal system where you keep on rolling up uh, you know, you have you take things off chain, like with Lightning, or you or 
like with us, with our roll-up, and then you like hash them together and put them back ultimately to the, to the core of blockchain. If you're doing that, you need to have something which is far more vertically integrated because until our technology improves quite a lot, and this will take several years, the easy interoperability between different systems which are not on the same layer one just doesn't exist. It's not there. Um, and right now, the Ethereum ecosystem is fracturing. Uh, people are going up into what, you know, these roll-ups or these side chains on Ethereum, so Matic, Optimism, Arbitrum, these are all uh, tools which different dApps are migrating to because the fees on Ethereum layer one have become too high to work with. And that's breaking the composability, which allows you to use these different Lego blocks together. And so what we've done with Sovereign is we've built a system which provides you with effectively a vertical integration, kind of like the 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 the, the Mac or the Apple of, of DeFi, right? It just works. The, the lending just works with the trading, just works with the swaps, etc. And the other advantage that this has is that now you don't need to do liquidity mining and a different token for every single service and start creating this, this ecosystem of never-ending sort of token upon token upon token upon token whose value sort of becomes this, this ponzi scheme. When you think through um, kind of 10 years from now, right? So kind of the future product suite of Sovereign uh, and the decentralized infrastructure around Bitcoin. Is this something where we can uh, maybe sharpshoot and improve on certain financial applications? Or is this a complete rebuilding of the system where uh, literally financial institutions in the legacy world will have to uh, embrace and, and start to play in this world, or they literally will be disrupted and left behind? Like, is this an alternative system and the legacy system persists? Uh, or is this full-on disruption where uh, if you do not embrace the new system, then uh, you basically are rendered uh, valueless? I mean, the other day, someone asked me, someone, it was, a, it was a government organization, but they asked me to send them a fax. So uh, old technologies never quite die, just like uh, shitcoin chains never quite die, right? Um, I don't think we're going to see the financial system that we're familiar with completely disappear. I don't think we're going to see fiat currencies completely disappear. But I think they're going to have to learn to adapt to an environment where they're no longer the center of gravity. And, um, and I think that what happens when you introduce permissionless innovation into any industry is that uh, it starts off slowly. And then you hit an inflection point and suddenly everything changes, right? Suddenly retail disappears. Suddenly, uh, uh, you know, um, television, like no, people don't have like television antennas anymore. They have Netflix. And it happens like very, very quickly. Uh, Blockbuster goes bankrupt quickly, right? So what I think we're going to do, um, what I think we're, ha we're seeing happen now is that Bitcoin is reconfiguring the way currency works, the way central banks work. They're all now trying to figure out how do they get in, how do they create their central bank digital currencies, right? And I think what's going to happen next is as we introduce that same kind of permissions innovation into finance, we're going to see uh, at the beginning nothing, and then suddenly all of the banks, all of the financial institutions, all of the insurance companies will have to scramble to figure out how they now fit into a new ecosystem, which which doesn't look anything like the ecosystem that they effectively created. 
When you think through that world, talk a little bit about synthetic assets and kind of their importance uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, is that something that is sustainable? Uh, kind of how you see that uh, synthetic asset uh, vertical playing out? Right. I think, you know, there are two roles for synthetic assets. One is to act as sort of like a derivative. So let's say you want to take a long position, I don't know, oil or Bitcoin. It doesn't matter. Um, you can create a, a, a token or representation of, you know, which, which goes up with 2x and down 2x the volume of Bitcoin. That's a derivative, right? Um, the second type of synthetic is there are a huge number of assets. The vast majority of assets today are not represented uh, sort of natively on any blockchain. And so people who want to trade Tesla shares, you can't trade Tesla. You have to, you know, you, you, and you don't want to do it on the NASDAQ. You want to do it on FTX or you want to do it on a decentralized exchange. You need a synthetic representation of Tesla shares. So I think the first form, right, the, the, these derivatives, they're always going to be there. They're sustainable. These synthetic versions, I suspect that over time, just because it's the most secure, most public, most available way of representing any type of financial asset, what we're going to see is we're going to ultimately see all types of equity, all types of bonds, debt instruments will all migrate to be natively uh, blockchain, you know, represented on the blockchain. There's folks who are asking, and, and for those who are watching live, go ahead and if you leave comments in the chat, I'm, I'm uh, monitoring them and I'm trying to weave some of those questions in here. Uh, there's folks asking on the lending side, how do the rates on something that is decentralized like Sovereign compare to the centralized uh, kind of peers? So is it higher, lower, the same? How does that work? Right. Truth is, we don't quite know yet because the volumes on Sovereign right now are quite limited. Um, due to our strong emphasis on security. So we've been live since September, but we're only slowly adding the ability for more people to join and for larger and larger transaction sizes. So right now, the amount being earned by people lending out Bitcoin is quite low. I think it's about 2.3%. Um, what we expect will happen is that as it uh, opens up, basically, you know, the, the, the barriers to entry uh, diminish, it will probably start migrating towards being the same market rates as any other um, uh, venue with one difference. So if you look at like the big players in the Bitcoin lending space today, I think, you know, you're looking at BlockFi, you're looking at Mesa, you're looking at Celsius. There's one thing that they can do to sort of juice their rates, which Sovereign will never be able to do. So, um, some of the biggest borrowers on BlockFi or Nexo or Celsius are um, institutional borrowers who are borrowing for carry trade or market making or arbitrage. What they do is they borrow without putting down collateral um, or putting down relatively small amounts of collateral. In other words, they come to Celsius or they come to BlockFi as a financial institution and they say, look, we have a credit score. We have a reputation, right? So lend us the Bitcoin and we will pay you back. Whereas in a decentralized system, you can't do that. You have to have, you can't have fractional reserve, right? Because that is basically a fractional reserve system. You can't have fractional reserve in a decentralized blockchain basis. And so it may be that the centralized services will always have somewhat, I mean, it will be arbitraged away, but they may always have somewhat higher rates that they can pay lenders. Um, and I, I think of that 
sort of amount that we may be forgoing is sort of the price of freedom. And I think it's something that we pay. There's questions about the Oracle problem, uh, specifically kind of third party versus first party. Uh, how do you see Oracles playing into this? Uh, how important are they? Uh, and any thoughts on first versus third party? Yeah, so with Sovereign, we use Oracles and we use Oracles to get exogenous prices into the system. In other words, the prices that are happening in the rest of the world so that um, prices reflected in Sovereign are more, are more robust. Um, you, any, any sort of central point in, in a system is a potential vector of attack or weakness. And oracles can potentially be centralized. So the decision that we made was to have multiple decentralized oracle systems feeding us information all the time. And what we, what, what the sovereign system does is it, it takes this information from the onion chain oracles, from the, uh, chain link articles and it compares them. And if there's a divergence in these prices, it um, it can halt trading automatically. In other words, the protocol itself can, can pause trading until the prices realign. So it's not a perfect system because you're still relying on, on other parties and third parties to provide information and because the system can end up being halted. So far, we haven't had that happen. Um, but it is quite a robust system because um, there really is no central provider of data to the system. Anyone permissionlessly can come and start acting as a provider of, of, of data to the system about pricing or anything else. Got it. What's the part that is the most difficult, do you think, as you build kind of more decentralized infrastructure on Bitcoin? Is there one specific product or one part of what would be considered traditional financial products that you think is more difficult than everything else? Yes, there's one non-traditional product that is very difficult uh, and is at the center of everything and where we put a lot of concentration, which is making sure that the peg, in other words, that when you're using your Bitcoin on the system, that it is that you can use it trustlessly on the system. Because these are not transactions that are occurring on Bitcoin main chain, which means that you need to kind of peg. You, you, you lock up your Bitcoin on the main chain and now you begin transacting on a different chain. So having a truly trustless peg uh, is a technical challenge, uh, which um, uh, we're not 100% there yet. So you are, you're not using, you don't have the same kind of security assurances that you have with Bitcoin. You have lower security assurances. Um, uh, and that's something which is being proved on all the time. Uh, with regards to the other question that you asked, there's also another really simple thing that you can't do in a decentralized exchange, which is like simple everywhere else, but extremely exotic on, on DeFi, right? And that's just having a way for people to take cash directly, you know, like money in your bank account or money in your wallet and use it on the exchange. They always need to find some kind of gate uh, right now. Um, and so interestingly, it's like the basic things, it's the simple things, uh, really on the on off ramps, which are the biggest challenge where we where we've been spending some like probably most of our time. Before I dig into a bunch of these questions that people have, um, where can people go if they want to learn more about Sovereign, if they want to use the products? So the Sovereign website is sovereign.app, spelled S-O-V-R-Y-N dot app. Um, and um, it's uh, you, if you go into the library of Dior, right? Uh, the library of do your own research on the website, 
you can uh, find a wealth of information. You can also try out the system. Um, so right now, you'd need to wait to get whitelisted to use the live system, but you can try it out on testnet, so test.sovereign.app. And if you just want to keep updated, you can you can follow uh, the Sovereign community, sort of like a whole bunch of people are tweeting through the same account at, uh, at Sovereign BTC. And so there's a bunch of questions uh, about the token involved. Um, everyone from why do you need a token to will the token eventually be traded on centralized exchanges like Binance and how you feel about that. Maybe just talk a little bit about the token and, and kind of... Uh, you know, what the logic and structure of it is, and then also kind of your thoughts on how that will be uh, treated by the rest of the uh, community. Yeah. So I think that the idea behind the token is extremely simple. Uh, the token is not an altcoin. It's not trying to be a coin at all. Uh, the token, which is uh, SOV, um, is designed to do something extremely simple, which was invented hundreds of years ago. It's basically a way of, coordinating the efforts of a large number of people by having um, them have the ability to vote on, on the system and to earn the revenues on the system. So in that way, it's kind of like decentralized equity in a way, right? Um, the difference is that you have to be an active participant in order to earn the revenue, in order that you have to actually participate in the governance. And it's not... Uh, that your claim on the on the system is not endorsed or protected by any court of law anywhere. Enough, right? If you if you buy shares in Tesla, Tesla have to behave in a certain way and pay you. You know, if they're going to pay a dividend, give you your right vote to right to vote, uh, because otherwise you can sue them. There's no one to sue uh, with sovereign, but at the same time, you don't have to sue anyone because the system is governed. Um, by the code with which it's written and, and and effectively is secured by the Bitcoin chain itself. So it can't it can't do arbitrary things. It can't it can't um, change its mind about how it's going to treat you as a customer. So I see a bunch of people being incredibly kind uh, in the comments, young investor, a few others. Uh, if you're watching this live, go ahead and smash the thumbs up. Yes, that does help more people on YouTube watch it. Uh, and if you share it on Twitter and tag me or Yago, uh, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, Yago, one other thing that um, I, I find really fascinating about all of this is um, it appears that the centralized financial system, uh, to some degree, is having structural issues, right, from just a, a performance standpoint. And uh, central banks and elected officials have to keep stepping in and kind of intervening. Uh, but also, there's a sentiment change. And that sentiment change is more psychological than anything. Uh, we saw that with, obviously, the GameStop and, and uh, Wall Street bets. Uh, but there's been this kind of underlying sentiment for, for a number of years now. How much of that is a tailwind for what you're building and for Bitcoin in general versus do you think that these uh, technologies would be successful even if that sentiment change wasn't occurring? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think that these technologies would be valuable regardless, right? I mean, when I first got interested in Bitcoin, I had no idea that there would be a Wall Street Spets game stop anything, right? Um, but what I did recognize was that 
Um, we, we give governments a huge amount of power. We give them the monopoly over violence. We give them the monopoly over creating the currency that we use to, to store and represent all of the effort that we put in in our work. Um, and, and they have time and time again acted irresponsibly. Now, a lot of people, I, I maybe am sort of you know, lucky, right, so to speak, that I got to experience this firsthand in a country that felt like it was a developed country. Um, a lot of people who have grown up in Europe or in the United States, they, they haven't experienced this in this generation. And so maybe they think it can't happen in the United States or you know, in Germany. But um, not that long ago, right, in the 19, 1936, the United States confiscated everyone's gold. Uh, in, in, in 1936, Germany was going through hyperinflation. Uh, this is not a, a, an unusual occurrence. It, it, it is unusual to go through periods where these things do not happen, uh, where, where, where fiat is involved. So um, to my mind, having an insure, a technology which provides an insurance policy against that was always going to be valuable. And, was, and we would always at some point reach the point where um, the, 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 the game of just printing was going to come to its natural end. And I, it feels very much like that's where we are now, unfortunately, in, in the advanced economies of the world, because that, that's a dangerous time uh, to be alive. And, 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 it's, and it's really important that we have a, a solid alternative. I, uh, I tend to completely agree. Um, I'm going to... Uh... To, to wrap us up here in a second. But uh, one other question that I've seen a couple of people ask is just um, in terms of how they can help, right? So uh, obviously using the product is one thing if there's uh, developers out there that want to uh, work with you, but something that's another, but just maybe talk through a little bit. Um, there's much people watching, there's much people who watch this afterwards. What can they do to help you and your team be more successful uh, and continue to kind of push forward the decentralized infrastructure around Bitcoin? Right. So Sovereign is a community effort and we have people joining us in one way or another all the time. It's really easy if you're a developer, especially if you have experience with Bitcoin or, or, or smart contracts. Um, but even if you're if you're not a developer, uh, we, 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 you know, there are people who are creating Sovereign art. You can see some of it like behind me, like these are these are different people who have created different sort of like superhero badges and um, you can um, uh, test the system, right? We have we have we have an extremely enthusiastic. We don't have any people who are doing QA, right? We have a community that we say, look, here's a new feature, go test it, and, and a day later we have a hundred complaints, which is exactly what we want, right? Um, so you can test out the system. You can tell your friends and give them the gift of sovereignty. Let them know that it's now possible. Um, and and I think the easiest thing is to just join our Discord. Uh, you can find the link on the website. Uh, at sovereign.app and um and and go into the bounty channel go into the, the the user feedback channel see what people are talking about you can see the devs talking about all of this the work they're doing in real time and just jump in i love it um before i let you go uh any words of uh encouragement or any thoughts on Bitcoin in general in terms of all of the uh, the adoption, the recent news, Elon Musk and Tesla, uh, Michael Saylor, Michael Strategy, just any uh, kind of things that are not sovereign related, but Bitcoin related? 
I always knew this was going to happen and I'm still shocked that it actually is. I, I'm right there with you. I, uh, <laughs> I said to somebody the other day, it's, uh, the two things that I know to be true are one, there's a foregone conclusion that you, myself, and many others have in our heads. Uh, but every milestone along the way is just kind of, you take a step back and breathe. You're like, Oh my God. Uh, and then the second thing is that every Bitcoiner I know wants the price to stay as low as possible for as long as that possible. Is, it's so true. Every time the price goes up, I feel such pain. <laughs> it, 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 uh, uh, I, I continue to tell people that ultimately the price will not matter, right? Because things will just be priced in, uh, in Satoshis and, and, uh, and Bitcoin, I think. But uh, on the way up, it is exhilarating. It is fun. It is this kind of adrenaline. But uh, every Bitcoiner kind of deep down, they, uh, they do not want to see the price go up. In fact, they want it to stay as low as possible for as long as possible. So I think it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. it's pretty funny that those two things happen. Cool. Yeah, uh, completely agree. Listen, it's been absolutely uh, amazing being on this uh, on this call with you and being able to talk to you about these things. Um, check out Sovereign. <laughs> All right. Listen, Yago, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I think people will really enjoy it and uh, we'll have to do it again in the future. Awesome. Cheers, man.